Dave Fanning on 2FM. Now, my guest in the studio at the moment is one of the most fascinating and respected people in the world of football. It is Martin O'Neill. And Martin, the first... Oh, by the way, very welcome. Uh, Thank the you. first thing it says here, it says, um, his new autobiography is called On Days Like These, My Life in Football, tells the story of his remarkable career. There's an implication there. <laughs> is it over? <laughs> oh, right. Well, after 50 years, I suppose maybe sometimes you have to call a halt to something. But, um, yeah, I, do, I just felt it was, uh, you know, there was a, a moment where... My, my sort of footballing time, both as a player and as a manager, straddles this fifty-year period. And uh, uh, I mean, I came into I came into uh, uh, professional football at Nottingham Forest less than six years after England had won the World Cup in nineteen sixty-six. Yeah. You know, and so within first couple of days of playing or getting into the first team, you know, you're in against Bobby Moore and uh, Jeff Hurst and. Um, Bobby Charlton and, and Dennis Law and people like this. So, and then you you know you see the changes that have taken place over those fifty years. Super pitches now that are played on rather than bog heaps but, yeah. but from before, um, and uh, obviously back pass rule changing as well too. Lots of lots of things, lots of lots of good things about the game, and one or two that you would have thought you would have rather remain more steadfast. Okay, well then let's take a look at this. If you were in then by 71 or thereabouts and five years after the famous World Cup win against West Germany, um, point about it is is that when you were a child, is this mm. always something you wanted to do? Because that's really the way it comes across. As in, you just wanted to be a professional footballer and you wanted to play in the top sphere, i.e. you wanted to be in what, what's now called the Premiership. I think that's, that's right, yeah. Um, for purposes, we'll call uh, when I'm uh, referring in my playing days to the first division. That is the Premiership yeah. at the time. Yeah. One, two, three, so, four. Yep. Um, but um, uh, I, I, th- I think so. Uh, um, I th- obviously I, I grew up in um, uh, Irish uh, nationalist background with the, um, my brothers playing for um, for Derry uh, senior side and. Um, Gaelic football, myself going to the All-Ireland final way back in 1958 with my mother as a six-year-old. So Gaelic was, you know, it was very, very strong within her household. Yeah. Um, but then I, I, I think it was um, watching the European Cup final in 1960 uh, with um, De Stefano and Puskas, Real Madrid winning that there, beating yeah. Eintracht Frankfurt 7-3. And I think, you know, it's only black and white and wasn't even her own TV. I think I was kind of smitten from that, from really from then onwards. Around the time Spurs won the double and all the rest of it. Well done, that's right. Yeah, that's right. exactly Danny right. Danny Blanchler, wasn't it? Danny Blanchler, yeah, 1960-61. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well before that World Cup win. And by the way, was it a goal? Surely you've had VAR. I'm, totally, I'm not going into that for in a second. The, in the in, World in, Cup in, goal? In the, in the, in the, uh, it was never a goal. It, was, it wasn't a goal. No, not Absolutely. No, couldn't agree no, more. Yeah. Okay, let's just take a look at this though. Like the, like the first team at Porter Down and all this. Like people have to help you and people do help and you You've done that with people. Jimmy McAlinden, mm-hmm. just one name I want to mention. Tell me about Jimmy McAlinden. Right, Jimmy McAlinden, he himself had a, a very decent career as a footballer in England. I think he won an FA Cup medal with Portsmouth in 1939 or something, I guess, here. But uh, um, a man from Northern Ireland himself, he came back to, to manage a, a different teams, uh, Glenavon, I think, for a while. But anyway... By by the time that I was trying to um, make a name for myself, I suppose, for want of better words, he was manager of Distillery. Yeah, I had uh, I had played reasonably well against a Dublin select for uh, for a, a Belfast Down and Connor team. We'd won a game at Celtic Park, the old Celtic Park that used to house um, Belfast Celtic, um, and I scored a couple of goals in that game. I'm not sure whether Jimmy McLinden was at the match or not, but anyway, would you believe it? About uh, about three or four weeks later, he came over to our house in Belfast 
actually came in personally to the house asked when I come and uh, and uh, try and join up with uh, with distillery and really it was his influence it was his backing because when I played in the reserves for four or five games I I was pretty poor in the in the reserve yeah. games but I must admit he said no listen uh, you uh, you you'll 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 make the grade no doubt about it and he put me within five games in the reserves yeah. he put me into the first and team and that kind of encouragement is so important like later on it is a really Catholic important. from Derry yeah. Billy Bingham comes along and says look it doesn't matter if you're the captain or not captain or whatever as long as you win who gives a damn that's true that that was a big move for him this is yeah. uh, this is 1980 yeah. uh, Billy Bingham uh, a Protestant himself uh, comes back to manage Northern Ireland for the second time and makes me captain so I'm the first uh, first um, a Catholic captain of Northern Ireland and I, and I thought he would definitely take some flack for that, which you you would expect. Um, obviously, the situation in in, uh, yeah. in Northern Ireland was uh, you know terrible. Yeah, it was pretty severe. Yeah. And uh, but he did say to me, he said, "Listen, I, 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 if we win the football matches, he said it, it won't bother anybody." And uh, you know his prophecy turned to be true. Yeah, that's right. By the way, we are talking with Martin O'Neill on days like these. My life in football is the full title of his current autobiography. And in that, I mean, when you wrote this, you were writing down bits and papers, uh, bits and pieces, maybe on a bit of paper, one day a month or whatever. Nothing much too big. There were recollections of your life, recollections of your career. And then somebody said, "Listen, look, let's get it all together and do a thing." You got no help. There is no ghostwriter, which there is with most of these kind mm-hmm. of things. And you decided to do it all yourself. Did you eventually get onto a type? writer or a um, computer even well it's a very good point <laughs> I yes I was doing it in longhand because that's all I ever but hold knew on, in doing it in longhand do you feel that you got to kind of almost this is going to sound silly know yourself better I, 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 I felt as if you know when when I was actually writing it and maybe not having the correct word to describe this and then scoring out I felt I was uh, it, it was authentic and I felt it was yeah. me uh, coming from the page in that sense of course then my daughters I've got two daughters who were un- incredibly helpful said dad you know what you know, there's actually easier ways yeah, of doing this yeah. you know and eventually but I still wanted to do the longhand so I did this here I photocopied it sent it to them they went on to one of those speaking machines or whatever you call it and then you can correct yourself and uh, after that but um, to me I still just wanted to uh, I, I wanted to put it down in writing and myself. the impression I get no matter how happy you were at a lot of things that I think going from student say 71 to professional footballer that was one of the best times of your life wasn't it? Oh well, without question, yeah, absolutely, yeah. no doubt at yeah. all about it. Yeah. You know, becoming yeah. a professional footballer in England was as you, as you well, like, mentioned there's earlier. There's so many big moments and so many teams and so many everything. I mean, Notts Forest really does seem to me to be at the centre of it all. Well, I I was there for ten years, so it's um, and you know from nineteen until uh, until twenty nine years of age. Yeah, so. and like Brian Clough comes in in seventy five, and there was a revolution. Well, not without doubt. I, I mean, if Brian Clough had not arrived at Nottingham Forest, I don't think that uh, I don't think that we would have been holding a couple of European Cups aloft in 1979. So, can I just say there then that means you are saying that the manager is absolutely that important, and it's not that old. Football managers don't win matches; players do. Oh, well, I, well, okay. <laughs> players do win football games, and there's no doubt about that. And players are very, very important. But you have to put them together. You have to you have to mould teams, and and you have to have a personality, and a drive, and a determination, and a charisma and of which uh, he had oodles of it, you know, no question about it. When he, strangely enough, when he did come into Nottingham Forest, he won his first couple of games, then didn't win a match for about 16 games. Yeah. Well, you know, not too many managers would survive that today. But no, Brian no. Clough was yeah. unsackable at the time, really. Yeah. 
And then his, his sidekick, Peter Taylor, came about 16 months later and there was a rejuvenation about Brian Clough then, no question about it. I'm not saying that he was, uh, he, you know, he was sleepy or anything like this. He, oh, yeah, he certainly wasn't. Yeah. But rejuvenation in his character and the two of them together, you could sense something was going to happen. And kids who follow football today, I mean, like you mentioned the first division, which is now the Premiership. So therefore, let's mention the European Cup final, which is now the Champions League or whatever. Like, I mean, not many people, not necessarily like of a certain age, they don't realise that Notts Forest won it two years in a row. Well, that's true. You know, it's it's uh, you know it's it's called advancement, isn't it? Really, I think. I in the, so, in the, yeah. yeah. But uh, yeah, we've we won what is called the Champions League for uh, two consecutive years, and. Uh, uh, obviously, a, a fantastic achievement considering that Nottingham uh, uh, is a really provincial city. Yeah. And uh, I, well, let me put it this way: I don't, I don't think it'll happen again. No, it probably won't. Then again, look at Leicester five years ago with the Premiership as well. You know, things do happen. Oh, sorry, know? I probably meant the European Cup. Yeah. Uh, no, but, I know, but, but, I know, but, but, I know, but, I know but you I do. But I mean, but these I, things do happen. Yeah, I absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Listen, Leicester's Leicester's uh, performance throughout the whole season was phenomenal. Yeah. I mean, even right up to the end, I don't think people could believe that they were going to do it. No, right. That's. I mean, at Christmas people say it's possible, but obviously they won't. They'll fall mm. by the wayside. Mm-hmm. They'll get too many yellow cards. They don't have enough people on the bench, <laughs> and all of these things. And they did it, and they did it before the last few matches as well. So, like, there's also 19 games with Forrest quite recently. Mm. There's not much, you don't say much about that. The only reason I didn't say much about it is because there's not much to say. Really? Really. Yeah. Um, well, I can. I, I could really can condense it now. If I'd known, I, I'd, I'd had an opportunity to manage Nottingham Forest maybe about three times in, in, in my man, managerial time. Yeah. And, uh, and I honestly thought, well, listen, I'd really want to try and get them into the into the big division, you know, into the Premier League. And so I signed an, an 18-month contract and I actually said to the owner, the Greek owner, Mr. Maranakis, said to him, listen, if I, do, if I can't get you up in this time, then obviously I, I would leave anyway. And uh, I had signed in January time. So, um, and he's, he actually said to me, well, don't worry about this. Now we, we, we will reinforce the team in the summertime. So perhaps yeah. maybe I was really yeah. looking for it. So I spent one week of pre-season. We actually won the last three games of the previous season. But anyway, 19 games. But as I said to you, if I had known it was going to be for 19 games, I wouldn't have bothered. No, indeed. But just going back to the other side of Knott's Forest, which is what we're talking about really at first, um, you were an integral part. You played a huge role in Forest's golden era. That is a major kind of thing for you, isn't it? It must be. Very, of course. Very yeah. proud. When, when, you, when, uh, when you set out in football, you actually want to win medals. And that's really what the game's yeah, I about. I don't even know why I said golden platinum era. Mm, I mean, you couldn't get better. No, you, you genuinely couldn't. And it yeah. was, uh, you know, the, almost from, uh, well, certainly from 19, uh, 1970, 1976, when Peter Taylor joined forces with yeah. Brian Clough. Yeah. Uh, it absolutely took off. Right. And, every, and we got to a stage, really, where, where we felt that we were just going to win. We're going to win games. Yeah. We scrambled up into the into the first division at the time, but finished third, and um, and honestly, and took the uh, took the Premiership by storm. Absolutely, you did indeed. Just one of the things you mentioned there about the changes that have happened. Um, what do you think about those things? When I mean, you mentioned the back pass, which is you can head back to the goalie now, but you can't kick it. I thought that was a great change. Mm-hmm. But I thought the biggest and best change 
was the three points and two points. In other words, it was two points for a win and now three points for a win. In other words, it made you play for a win when you went away. Like if you go, if you play an away game and you drew, mm-hmm. you saw that as a bit of a victory, you got your point. But now anything that isn't three points is, is losing two points. Right, I, I totally agree with you. Yeah, that came in, I think it was about 1980-81 season, I think it was. And... Uh, and obviously, it's here to stay, and it's been, and I, and I think it's been a great advancement. Yeah, absolutely, great. Yeah. definitely agree with but you. But let's say, would you agree with VAR? Did you see the match the other night? I saw the game. <laughs> I saw. I saw the highlights of the game. Yeah, you right. talk about the, where the ball was uh, over the line. Uh, no, no, you said the ball was over the line. Was it? It, well, it looked to me. It did look it to, me too. to me. I mean, the thing what they say now, where the ball is over the line, we're talking about Japan and Spain here, but the ball is over the line, but part of it is overhanging. I mean, come on, lads, you know. Well, to me, I could see a bit of green, I think, between the white and the ball. It's over the line. I thought that that's the angle that they would have taken, the one yeah. that we that we all thought that was definitely over the line. And when yeah. they stopped it, you could definitely see a bit of green. Yeah. There's no question. Then they did that, sort of an overhang, I did know. they? Yeah, yeah. And then you felt as if there's maybe even a shadow. Yeah, the ball mean, overhangs. I didn't know that that was part. I thought once you see a bit of green, that's it. I, I agree with you. Yeah. I'm with you. Yeah. I'm with you. I'm with I know, you. But do you, remind, do you remember England against Germany some years back? when they were 2-0 down and uh, it was uh, was it John Terry you know it was one of the one of the Chelsea players no it was it was, it was uh, Frank, Frank Lampard Frank Lampard yeah, Frank, in 2010 like, yeah, I think it was the World Cup four yards absolutely the now the point about it is people say oh it doesn't matter anyway because they lost 5-1 or 5-2 yeah. no it does because if they went in at half time only 2-1 down absolutely. as opposed to 2 all down be com- <coughs> 2-0 down it would be a completely different game in the second half of, cur- of course so the goal goal line technology is also a good change as well too because of uh, uh, you know you're, you're checking these things but uh, it's an interesting one I'd like to hear your view on VAR now because here we are we're talking about what almost five years after its introduction and really and it's causing mayhem well hold on let's let's just give you this look the introduction of VAR at the World Cup okay at this World Cup whether it was Anton Griezmann's disallowed late equaliser against Tunisia for France Argentina's VAR awarded penalty after Chesney uh, Chesney appeared to gently brush Lionel Messi's face absolutely not a penalty with his hand or the lack of a penalty after England's Harry Maguire was wrestled to the floor against Iran the subjective calls remain a point of contention as they say it really it's just well it wasn't the whole point about VAR to take subjectivity out of of it wasn't yeah, it really yeah, wasn't know, it yeah, you know yeah. when you know you're talking about Griezmann's in, uh, incident there yeah. well the the game looks as if it was over it looks as if the, the, uh, it's a draw in the yeah. game and then suddenly the referee has been called back to have a look at it yeah, I know. and then I, I heard the I heard the commentator saying I this will be subjective now so so even though he's been called over to see it, yeah. it's still a decision for him to decide whether whether it's offside or onside. Well, I mean, that's that's a funny thing you say that because in the final four years ago, when France beat Croatia four two, um, Griezmann got he, he changed the whole game by kind of how should I put this by winning a penalty or by, by sorry by winning a free kick. Yeah, that's just that sounds to me like cheating. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, like you know, I know I know that's what they do. All, the, all you gotta do is feel a hand on your back yeah. and you fall. And you're they got a free kick and they scored a goal and then they won the match and right, they won yeah. the World Cup. Yeah, absolutely. I, anyway, we could we could go on. We like could this go on forever. Let's, in a day. let's go well, back let, to the. Let book. me put it this way: VAR hasn't cleared my. Uh, oh things my up. God! It certainly has not. No, Martin O'Neill. We're talking to here on days like these. Uh, my life in football is the name of the book. So looking for the other things here. One thing I haven't mentioned yet is Celtic. I mean, <laughs> phenomenal success at Celtic I mean what, what was it seven cups yeah well Celtic's a great football club you know it's uh, iconic it, is, uh, it wasn't necessarily that great when you were coming in they were losing to Rangers every second match well they were and I suppose really yes they, they, thankfully they'd been able to stop Rangers from winning ten in a row yeah. but essentially the the um, they had fallow years I must admit 
Um, I had I um, I inherited a great player in Henrik Larsson. But I tell you what, I think I did. I think I gave him a lot of help in the sense of getting some really good players to join the football club. Neil Lennon was a big. What do player. you mean? The fact that he was there, the fact that Larson was so good and he was there. Larson was there as a, as, and I probably didn't realise how good he was. Oh, and, he's you brilliant. Know, yeah, he was yeah. a terrific player. Yeah. But what I'm saying is that I think the introduction of some really decent players, and me buying some players, Chris Sutton coming into the football club, a landscape changer. Um, uh, Neil Lennon coming in about four months later Joswald Garen, uh, Didier Gatt and Alan Thompson players like this here added to the couple of really good players I don't think they, they I don't think they had a lot of really great players but they had certainly one or two that could still play Well I'll tell you speaking of figures then one or two 213 games you had 29 draws and 40, 40 losses and then everything else was won well, Un- uh, yeah. unbelievable statistics. Yeah. So, um, just obviously, Larson was the bit that I'd associate you with that too. But I mean, you leave Northern Ireland when you co- you mentioned troubles earlier on. Mm-hmm. But you're in like you're not stupid. You you know about Rangers and Celtic, and you know how crazy you can get yeah. in it. But you book into a hotel. <laughs> um, I mean, you're in a hotel with your wife, and like basically, Rangers says like this is a Rangers hotel. <laughs> Essentially, like, that that was right. That's exactly right. We didn't know this. The hotel was lovely, lovely yeah. place, and I'd been staying there. With with my wife for uh, for the most of the week but and then I would leave to go to with, with the team the night before the big Rangers game and then I get the phone call from my wife to tell me I, that uh, she's been ushered out of the hotel yeah. because Rangers were coming in now I don't think I, I mean it was it was early in my tenure there so I don't think and I, I I make the joke I don't think that some of the Rangers players were running around with a photograph of my wife in their pocket you know thinking well would it be a minute she might be uh, she might be listening into our team yeah, time. Right. it just That's wasn't to be no. but it just it, it was symptomatic I think of you know of the um, of the, the I madness suppose, the, and the passion uh, the madness and the passion as well yeah right but at the same time didn't Rangers like just in that incident they did say to the to the hotel like unless he's out we won't continue our contract with you I, I, I did think they go that, that far I, I think that I, know, I think that they were um, no I think that was more the hotel concerned about this oh, right, yeah, absolutely yeah, you know yeah, yeah. but Rangers would definitely have wanted uh, wanted a, a clear run yeah, this year. Yeah. And if they had a contract with it, I suppose they're probably entitled to that. Maybe the, the only the only point about it is that I just felt that uh, that maybe my wife should have been told a couple of days earlier than that. Right, you know? exactly. That's yeah, indeed. Okay, just some quick ones I want to mention, which is um, Eusebio. I mean, the, one of the most famous players in the history of football. The shirt. You wanted to get the shirt at the end of a game. How on earth did you not get the shirt and end up with his shorts? Right. Okay. So. <laughs> We're playing at Highfield Road at Coventry yeah. because Northern Ireland cannot play the games at Windsor Park. It's uh, it's my full debut. I've scored a goal and I'm thinking to myself, Eusebio must see this here. He must see a young lad. He must want to change shirts with me. No chance. <laughs> no chance. But Brian Hamilton was, was man-marking Eusebio for the last 10 minutes of the game, obviously, in this rush to get his shirt. So he was the first one when the final whistle is over. Uh, Eusebio has to take his shirt off and give it to Brian Hamilton. Doesn't have to, but he does do. Yeah. So he's walking down the tunnel now just with with Brian Hamilton's shirt draped over his shoulders and big bare chest. And um, and it is Eusebio at the end. And uh, so I go and tap him in the shoulder just about a yard or two before he goes into his own dressing room. I tr- and he turns around and has a look at me and I point, just so I point to his shorts <laughs> saying... Uh, can I have these shorts? And would you believe it? Honestly, he looks at me quizzically to begin with, you know, and then he goes, uh, uh, 
Wait, wait, are you sure? Yeah. yeah and yeah. I took the shorts. I, I, I've no idea if I should be saying, have you no shame or, or brilliant. <laughs> I can't remember. I, I really don't know which, which one. Listen, just a, a quick one there, just about getting into the Euros as the manager of Ireland. Did you enjoy your time as the manager of Ireland? I, I, I did. Well, for, for most of it, I did. I, I enjoyed us trying to, uh, trying to qualify for the, for the Euros. I mean, my whole, my second contract depended on us on uh, on us qualifying for the for the Euros, yeah. and so um, I obviously took uh, Roy Keane on as the assistant, and uh, yeah, getting to the Euros was fantastic. I know we beat Germany in a game, and that was a obviously a big highlight. Yeah. But really, to me, beating Bosnia the 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 night for us to qualify because that meant there was a finality to it that we've actually made it there, and then of course Robbie Brady's goal in in. Um, Oh, in France, yeah. but the yeah. moment I, I think I cherished most of all of it was actually just the opening, the opening um, uh, of the uh, of our first game against Sweden, where um, where Sweden and uh, the Republic of Ireland. Yeah, came actually that. I was at all. that. The crowd was crazy. Yeah, Huge. and it, and it reminded me so much of Jack Charlton's days, which yeah. is the sort of thing that you try to yeah. recreate. Yeah, you I'm were saying, trying to emulate in some ways because of what he it, did in nineteen ninety four. You're not going yeah. to change that because yeah. that was the first one and yeah. it was fantastic and yeah. all those. But I remember seeing those scenes from Dublin Airport into the city, things yeah. like this here, and yeah. this is what you wanted to do. And that moment, I think, was uh, was was uh, you know. Really you know, captured. Probably. I remember when you, it, it was a draw against Denmark away, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. And then at home, I was in the car and I missed the first couple of minutes. And the, Ireland were one 0 up. Yeah, yeah, this is great. And then I got in and watched the rest of the match. And you know, much as I like the player uh, who, who currently still plays for them, uh, who now plays for Manchester United, it was terrible. It was like five one in the end, wasn't it? We got well, well, well beaten. What happened is that we were goal in front. Uh, we missed two opportunities, two chances yeah. to go uh, two two nil up, and I think that we would have if we'd gone for a second goal that been right. anyway. Denmark scored two quick goals before half time. Now you have a chance to no well, uh, we need two more goals. Yeah, and the present team at that time wouldn't have had enough creativity in it. So you put on Aidan um, McGeady and you put on Wes Hulahan. You know that you're going to be weakened uh, immediately by you know uh, physicality. Uh, in terms of and uh, in, in terms of yeah. strength and things like this here, but you needed some you needed something maybe to conjure up a goal. The next goal was going to be important. It happened to Denmark, and then as uh, oh, they, gone, they, then. they yeah. picked us up, they yeah. picked us up, yeah, and indeed. it seemed as if it was just like a a night pouring of vitriol with the. Um, with the uh, Irish press, but listen, it's such yeah, as just the way it is the all the time. And anyway, with Roy Keane, and, uh, people are always looking for something as well. No matter what he says or doesn't say, people always want to do other things and go mad. With uh, I think about Harry Arter and uh, Jonathan Walters and all the rest of them, that and suddenly it becomes headlines. And it's uh, like, abs- what on earth is going uh, on? Absolutely. Okay, one last question I just want to ask you. Nothing to do with football because we could do that all day long. And it's this: if you're not now uh, doing football too much, um, could you become a criminologist? I mean, what's this about you and Hanratty and you know, in terms of the A6 murders and that? How, how obsessed were you? Uh, absolutely obsessed with it. Um, I was 10 years of age. Um, yeah. I was about to go to school. I think there was, um, it must have been about 10 past eight in the morning or quarter past eight, news coming through on the radio and that um, that uh, James Hanratty had been hanged for yeah. the murder, uh, for the A6 murder. 
and um, and my mother I remember shedding a tear because she, she seemed to know a lot about the case. Remember, there's only two t- TV stations. Was she at that shedding a tear time. for Hanratty? Or I, th- for I the... think so. Oh, I, th- okay. I I absolutely yeah. think so. Yeah. And I think primarily because Hanratty had always uh, said he was innocent. innocent. Oh yeah, innocence during the time, and there seemed to be a lot of doubt. Yeah. Anyway, so. Fast forward quite a number of years, and would you believe it? I have to say, Dave, I met I met the the barrister who actually defended James Hanratty. I met him in the year two thousand, and by that time he'd become an eminent barrister, big big name in uh, in the um, in London, yeah. and uh, and he gave me about three or four hours of his time, and it was the most fascinating four hours right. you could have spent, really. So there could be a second but, career there, yeah. But no, no, <laughs> I'm not saying that. But there was definitely what he did say was that. On the evidence uh, provided at that time at that trial, yeah. that Hanratty should have walked, yeah. he should have walked yeah. free. Indeed. But DNA, no, DNA evidence might suggest otherwise. All that. And is. he was one of the last hanged as well, wasn't he? Yes. Yeah, listen, look, it's all there. The whole thing. There's lots of football in the book as well, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> it is Martin O'Neill on days like these. My life in football to give it the full title, and it's out now, and it's blinking great. Macmillan, um, Martin, thank you so much. No, thank you, Dean. Thank you for asking me. I really appreciate it. Dave Fanning on Two FM.